Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Talking Shit About with me, Elizabeth, and we're going to talk about Star Trek. Finally, I'm so excited. It's such a great episode. So these episodes of Talking Shit About come out the first Friday of each month, and I bring somebody on to talk shit about something they love, something they hate, and hopefully by the end we've learned something. I learned a lot from this episode, and I hope you will too. And if you haven't yet, please give the show a rating to help people find it. Again, not for my ego, I swear to God. It's just to help people find it when they search for it. So without further ado, let's talk some shit. Okay, welcome everybody to Talking Shit About. I am here with CW, who I met through Star Trek Wholesome Posting. And we're here to talk about some Star Trek and some post-scarcity economics. But before we get into the weeds and into one of my favorite subjects of all time, which again is Star Trek, I will let them introduce themselves a little bit, you know, just kind of what you want people to know about you, your passion, and of course, how you got into Star Trek and your favorite series. It's actually kind of funny because for a second, I, I could have sworn we met in Star Trek shit posting because I think I'm more active there. <laughs> it's uh, Oh, maybe it's, it it's was. A, it's a great group. It, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically enough, I've always found the uh, the discourse among people in the shit posting group is ironically a little less toxic sometimes. Sometimes the wholesome posting group, people... Uh, People get really fierce with arguments in there and, and in the shit posting group, I think it's just they take it less seriously. And I kind of like that. But anyways, yeah. So, uh, well, I'm CW. Uh, I've been a huge fan of Star Trek and it's actually what got me into what I'm doing today, which is uh, I study uh, socioeconomic theory of post-labor and post-scarcity systems, which I'm sure we'll dive into that. And uh, I think... I mean, growing up, you know, I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, where it was just on the TV. The next generation was just something that you watched. And so I, I don't think any household didn't have at least the occasional episode of that on. And once I kind of fell in love with it, I started watching all the other shows like in sequence and everything, following along with everything. And if I remember right, it was Deep Space Nine. They got really deep into the concept of the Ferengi as sort of uh, what I what some people completely missed the point is that they were capitalists. They were like the the extreme version of capitalism just to highlight any flaws. And that really resonated with me because I was like, wait a minute. Every time it would show the Fringy doing something and show that it was like bad or causing problems, I was always like, wait, wait, we, we do that. But why why is that bad? We we do that and uh that's probably what uh what kind of changed the way I was thinking about things. And I think that's a huge part of what Star Trek tries to do is sort of show us our world in a different context so that we can kind of see things that we wouldn't have noticed before and, and actually encourage you to think about things that you wouldn't have thought about before. And they do a good job of it. So is Picard your favorite captain? Uh, or Cisco uh, or somebody else? <laughs> that's that's hard to say that's that's i i like cisco a lot um some of the storylines of ds9 involving him i didn't really enjoy that much but i like cisco as a captain uh it's kind of like I, I i like certain things about each captain and dislike certain things like i love i love janeway janeway's a great captain but she also made some some especially moral calls uh freedom or what is justice for tuvik's because she made some moral <laughs> calls that were at the very least questionable. And, and it's like, I, I think every captain has that. Every captain has that moment where I feel like they're supposed to have failed or done something wrong. And you're supposed to just see that flaw in them and, and be like, okay, we're not all perfect. I think mm -hmm. uh, if anything, Picard is the only one that they, they almost don't let him do that, but he's also the one who tells other people, hey, it's so you can do everything right and still fail. That's not 
that's not, you know, you didn't do something wrong. That's not you being bad. That's just life. And I forget the exact quote, but I love that. And it's like, he's the only oh. one that I can't, can't just immediately think of a time where he just screwed something up. Like he just, it is he possible just... to commit no mistakes and still lose. That is not a weakness. That is life. I have it hanging yes. up in my break room at work. <laughs> yeah, that's a great quote. And ironically, I think he's one of the few captains that I can't think like there's times where he, you know, he bent the hell out of the prime directive. Sure. But, you know, he was still following the purpose of it. Things like that. So, man, he, he might be the one the one exception to his own rule. So for anyone who is not familiar with Star Trek or loves Star Trek, but hasn't really thought about that sort of economic side of it, um, how would you describe what there? I mean, obviously, you know, like you mentioned earlier, the Ferengi are sort of a representation of capitalism and that they're different from the um, Federation because, you know, of their values with money versus the economic yeah. system of the federation so so there's actually a, a book that like if, if anyone's even remotely interested in this i always recommend this book and it was written by uh, i'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of his name as uh, uh manu sadia is he's a french economist who wrote treconomics the economics of star trek and it's actually a it's a serious look it's not just like a silly book like or, or one of those where it's pure fantasy, like the technical manuals. Yeah, they write it with scientific terms, but it's it's all just like fantasy sci-fi. But this book is actually a realistic look at how the economics of Star Trek would work. And in Star Trek, the the Federation is a post-scarcity society. They they have eliminated the concept of scarcity, which scarcity is where we get all modern economics from is the the concept of scarcity and how to basically solve the problems that scarcity creates scarcity just being uh, any necessary resource not being so abundant that that you just it's just there something that you have to actually work for or encourage or something so with post scarcity you know with the technology that they have in star trek they they just the simple version is they don't have money there's the the hierarchy of need has been solved up to a certain point where they do not need money to incentivize labor is the the shorthand of it the interesting thing in star trek though is again like with the ferengi uh they're involved in trade with other species many of whom have economies who have currency and so you've got you it's almost like you're throwing that extra bit of complication in there that here is a society that does not use money internally for its own people, but still has to have some means for those people to trade universally with, with other species. So you, you do still get some of that in Star Trek. And it, it, because of that, you get to see the contrast between what the Federation has accomplished and what some of these other species have accomplished. And, that, and that's purely intentional. And it's uh, it's been even said in interviews that they intended to highlight the difference between what the Federation has become economically and what races, especially like the Ferengi are as a way of showing the problems with scarcity. So when we talk about post-scarcity, so like what are the, some of these needs or things that um, are no longer scarce, I guess, if that makes sense. Well, uh, in any basic society, like in, 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 you know, society goes from a, a tribe of, basically an extended family all the way up to a civilization or country with billions of people uh in any society your your main things that are that are inherently scarce are things like uh food shelter safety these are things that pretty much any living creature needs and in small societies it's real simple to solve that kind of scarcity because if if it's just like a basically an extended family living as a tribe well, we all know what we all need. We all know how to get it. We all know who's good at what. We know Steve is the best hunter. We know that that Bobby is the best gatherer. We know that uh, Julia over there, she can cook really good. So it's real easy to say, okay, you do this, you do this, and you do this, and everything just simply gets done. And that that is 
how you solve scarcity is you just you find ways to get the things that everyone needs done. And with when you start throwing efficiency into it, you start looking at the fact that if I was living completely on my own, I got to devote so much time of my day to hunting. I got to devote so much time of my day to cooking, so much time of my day to keeping things clean, so much time of my day to patrolling my area and keeping it safe. But if I've got a group of 20 people, it's a lot easier for me to just spend a little bit extra time hunting and get enough food for everyone. That's easier than it is dividing like all of my personal tasks into my day is for me to just take on everyone's portion of one task and focus on that. That's where you start getting into efficiency. When you got a society that starts growing really big, efficiency takes on a whole new meaning. You start doing farming. Now you got, you know, one, one family is growing all the food for, for 50 families. Uh, scarcity-based economics comes in when it gets hard to track all of that. When it gets hard to say, I don't have to worry about potatoes. Steve's got that because I don't know Steve. There's, there's a thousand people. I don't know all of them. I don't know what they're all doing. And it's very easy to feel like the amount of work being done is not equal for everyone. So you start getting things like resentment. You start, you start looking at someone and thinking, well, I don't think what they did is worth me giving them the portion of carrots that I grew, that the, I'm supposed to give to them. Uh, you just don't have that unified social group. And it's one of the things you also, you hear people all the time talk about socialism. Socialism is an attempt to do that, to do that, that structured group where everyone just does their part on a large scale. And unfortunately, it's incredibly hard to do. It's an entire political system. Communism was developed just on the concept of forcing that on people. And it's not bad. It's not a bad thing, but it's really hard to force good nature on people. It's, it's hard to, to get that community vibe on a large scale. Uh, Scarcity-based economics, money in general, was created so you didn't have to. So you could simply assign a value to things, and then I could, I could produce a massive amount of tomatoes, exchange them for money that I could then use to get anything else. And the idea was that when you saw me come to you with my money, you know that I'm doing my part in society, and so you're willing to exchange with me to get that money. The money becomes represent representative of the labor that I have performed which validates that I have done my part. And so I get part of your part. <laughs> and that's, that's scarcity economics for the past, God, 4,000 years of, but even before the first real currency came about, people were trading uh, salt as a universal currency. So it's, it's, it's been around pretty much forever because that has been the problem pretty much forever is labor scarcity. You got to get people to do their part. And that's what, that's what it's all about. And that's where Star Trek comes in with, uh, with something really interesting. Star Trek pop, popped up the idea of replicators in Next Generation. Uh, I, be I believe that was the first, first appearance of the replicator was uh, Next Generation with uh, Picard simply saying, Earl Grey tea, hot, and there's his tea. No, no barista, no cook no waiter just he 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 tells a machine to do it and, and it happens there is no one to incentivize to do that work and that that changes everything my mind is like blown right now <laughs> yeah that's that's like it's it it, it it's weird because it's like like this this might be your first time hearing it said like that and it might be like your viewers they might have never heard it say said that way but we all know that's what it is it's we we all understand that yeah that's that's what it's always been it's uh the analogy i like to use is you know the gears of society oh man you gotta you gotta keep the gears of society turning to keep society functioning so we gotta be turning those gears so we gotta have a reason to turn those gears and that's that's money that's economics and the what star trek introduced and what uh, i mean this this goes way back before star trek um uh, uh, philosophers have been theorizing about this concept for a long time is that when you need to turn the gears of society 
uh, you can incentivize a person to do it, or you can hook a motor up to the gears because, man, nothing turns a gear like a motor. <laughs> they literally built for that purpose. And it's the efficiency of production that even back as, as, as early as uh, the, the first industrial revolutions, uh, we've known this was coming. We've, we've seen the rapid escalation of efficiency, like uh, improving on exponential levels. And yeah, even as uh, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, the guys who came up with the idea of communism, even in uh, Das Kapital Volume 3, there's a reference where they basically say, yeah, one day uh, efficiency will reach a point where human labor becomes irrelevant as a need, at which point all of these systems uh, fail. And Adam Smith, the founder of modern capitalism, pretty much said the same thing. They, they all, they've all said that these systems are to solve labor scarcity, but labor scarcity is also being solved by technology. And once technology does that, we don't need these systems anymore. And those are the founders of the systems who said that. This reminds me of a conversation I had with a coworker recently. So I work um, in a shelter setting. So I work with people who are experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about what it means to be a quote unquote productive member of society. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's and a, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. And for me, what I said was two things. Mm -hmm. Your needs are met and you mm -hmm. feel fulfilled. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that kind of ties in with this of, you know, and people want to feel useful. People want not necessarily a job but they want to contribute. It's oh, yeah. something I've noticed so much in my work. And it's... yeah, that that's human nature. Like that, yeah. that's actual, that's you, like you'll hear the term human nature being used for a lot of things. And then somewhere in the background is an anthropologist slowly shaking their head and crying because it's, <laughs> it's almost always used wrong. But you want to talk human, like people are like, oh, humans are lazy by nature. No, they're the opposite. Humans mm -hmm. hate sitting still. That's why jail is so effective. Well, it's it's an effective deterrent. I won't say it's effective at reform, but people don't want to go there because who the hell wants to just sit around and have all their needs met? Like, mm -hmm. not if you can't do anything with it. What's the point of having a life if you can't do something with it? And that is a universal truth that everyone understands, even as children. Uh, it, it It's the the simple fact is that's such human nature that if you didn't have that if i if i gave you all of your needs and you still just sat on the sofa all day you need a therapist you actually have something possibly chemically wrong like that is so far against human nature but it's what everyone says will happen if we oh if we just give people money they they'll just stop working and be lazy all day well maybe if they're horribly depressed but <laughs> Aside from that, no, they're gonna they're gonna want to do something. So you 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 don't give them you don't even give people. It's not about give people money. Give people the opportunity to do things, take care of their needs. But then, like myself, I, I love woodworking. I love gardening. I love I love building things. Um, I'm not going to be happy if someone told me I will take care of all of your needs because I actually need more than that. I need all of my needs taken care of. And then I need the resources to uh, build a gazebo for the local park. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't care if it's in my yard. I just I want to. There's not a gazebo there. And that's sad. There should be a gazebo there. It's a great spot for a gazebo. I want to build a gazebo. That's where my mind goes. Once I'm no longer thinking, how am I going to pay for rent next month is I immediately start thinking of gazebos and, you know, other things, but not just gazebos, but they are nice. I could, I could be pretty happy making a bunch of gazebos to start. Um, it's like, reminds me of when we got the stimulus check and mm -hmm. like the first one, you know, oh, cool. Goes to bills and rent. Yeah. But the yeah. second one, I was like, oh. I can buy a tattoo gun. That's something I've wanted to do <laughs> for go. so long. Yeah. And like, it sounds kind of silly, but like, if I, if my hands weren't super shaky, that's something I could pursue as, you know, something, not that income is my main goal, but you know, to It's something you would still that. do. Yeah. yeah. And I know, you know, so many people that got to use that money to pursue their passions. And Oh, yeah. 
there's know, e there's even things. like there's statistical correlations to that um around the time of the second stimulus check youtube videos and websites devoted to educational diy like uh teaching people how to do woodworking teaching people how to knit and crochet uh their views had a, a massive spike nearly double based on like previous years uh, so it was a huge increase from people who were just like, hey, I got a little extra money. I want to learn how to, and I'm stuck at, like, that was the other big thing. I'm stuck at home. <laughs> I can't go anywhere. I can't go to work. Even if I could go somewhere, I can't go to work. So uh, I'm going to learn a new skill. And they did. And um, the store, God, like, if you, uh, I feel like I should have predicted this one because I'm always, like, these are all concepts that COVID proved to to all of us like all of us, like sociologists we've we've always said these things and covid really proved it to us but i wish i had thought ahead i would have bought stock in home depot and lowe's right at the start <laughs> of covid because yeah home improvement stores saw a lot a lot of that money a lot of stimulus money just went straight to home depot and people cuz people got all those all those little projects all those little uh yeah, man this, this this thing's loose i'd love to redo this cabinet and they just didn't have the time and that's that's kind of the biggest factor in post-scarcity and post-labor economics it's not just that you know we we take away i guess the hassle you might say of economics in general but you get your time back because uh, the two steps, I, I say the two things as if they're interchangeable, and they're, they're definitely not. Uh, post-labor and post-scarcity economics, those are like two different steps, uh, one post-labor leading to post-scarcity. And one of the big factors of post-labor economics, which is what we're all trying to do right now, a lot of us are, are leaning towards this, is the 40-hour the work week is just kind of an arbitrary thing that we just came up with at one point we could knock that down to 20 hours tomorrow. If we, if we actually wanted to, that, that could, it could be a 20 hour work week for everyone tomorrow. And that, that wouldn't really affect anything, but with a little bit of effort, it could be a 10 hour work week pretty easily. And that's without massive changes to infrastructure. That's without massive development of technology. It, it, we just can, we, we have that degree of efficiency that we could do a 10 hour work week. Uh, the problem is, of course, that you got to pay people four times as much per hour and mm -hmm. no investor would allow that. <laughs> it's not that the companies couldn't do it. It's not that the money's not there, but that's the investor's money. And they really need that to build crappy submarines with, you know, so, <laughs> you know, what, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> I'm never going to feel shame for those jokes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> never no. going to feel shame for it. What you're laughing? Oh, there. Yeah, I saw this really funny post that was like, "You're laughing. A bunch of billionaires are stuck or lost in the ocean, and they're playing on a PlayStation Two controller, and you're laughing." Yeah. So good. <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I I know they they signed like I, I like going rock climbing. Uh, I go to a rock climbing gym, and it's nowhere obviously nowhere near as dangerous as uh <laughs> as what they did, but there's padding and everything but i know if i slip off that rock and i fall the wrong way i might break my arm I, I i do not expect everyone there to be like oh my god we can't believe this happened of course you can believe this happened we all know this can happen i signed a waiver specifically because this can happen no one should be surprised <laughs> no one should be upset it should just be oh that sucks and that's about how i feel about that so oh no oh, that sucks for them but that's it. That's the extent of it. Cause yeah, that, that was apparently a very long waiver that mentioned death three times on the first page. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not, it's not a tragedy to me. Yeah, we can't, so we can't take money away from investors says, cause they, uh, they, they got to get their submarine tickets, you know? So since we're in the U S I'm thinking more in terms of the U S but do you see us heading toward a future I'm like Star Trek is like, you know, obviously like would be great, but yeah, <laughs> um, more so post scarcity. If you if you take away the the aliens from Star Trek, that's a 
practically inevitable future as far as and the economic side of it is i would actually say it's inevitable i don't think it would be possible to prevent it uh i i don't see how that would be possible it is the inevitability of knowledge and and technological progression that will force a system like that in place um Again, this was something, so like the, the concept of automation goes back to the Greeks. Uh, uh, I believe it was um, Hephaestus was the Greek god of blacksmithing and, and invention. And he had automatons uh, that, that were working in his shop. And so the concept of like this mechanical being that does things for me has literally been around as, as long as we've told stories. Mm-hmm. But even even the people who founded our current economic systems, they they all said we see this happening uh, from the the first time someone sharpened a rock to use it to attach it to a stick to use it as a plow to the guy who said, hey, why don't I have my oxen pull this thing and then it can do even more. And one day someone's like, holy crap, steam produces a lot of pressure. I wonder if I can make that turn something. We've, we've seen technological progression and every single step of it has done the exact same thing. It has made things more efficient, which means one hour of a human being's time has equated to more and more and more force and, and energy into creation it's it's exponential increase in the efficiency so one hour of me putting forth effort a hundred years ago would not produce as much as one hour of me putting forth effort today and we have reached a point with uh not just with the progressions we made in robotics but especially with uh progressions that we're starting to make in machine learning and ai we're 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 reaching an infinity point where Uh, For instance, right now, I'm working on a design for a wood D20 dice case. It's a really cool, cool little thing. I I love tabletop gaming and I love making stuff like that. And it's it's taking me a week to design this thing. But once I have the design, it's produced on a laser that's sitting three feet to my right right now. Once I have the design, I, I can just press the button over and over and over again and make one after another, after another, after another. And if I wanted to, I could, I could set up a system for the little connectors that I laser cut. Maybe I 3D print them instead. Now I don't have to assemble those. It's the effort that I put in doesn't just make creating the next individual piece faster. It makes creating every single one that I create forever faster and faster and faster with less and less effort from me. And that's what production efficiency is. And we really are reaching the point where production efficiency is nearly infinite. We even, uh, there's currently OpenAI is developing a 3D modeling system where instead of, let's say you want a 3D model of a parakeet, well, instead of trying to get one to hold still and scan it or sitting there and 3D modeling one by hand, which could take time, you will literally just tell the computer, it's uh, uh, called Shapey, S-H-A-P-E. You will tell the computer, make me a 3D model of a parakeet. And just like it does with AI images, it will create it. That is infinite productivity. That is, that is uh, unlimited potential for productivity with almost no human investment because then your 3D printer cranks it out for you. It's like so, an early replicator. Yeah. It, it very much is, especially in the fact that the computer can do even the design portion. And that's, that's, that's something that we've, we've known would happen, but I don't think any of us expected it so fast, which is a good thing. Because um, ultimately, as I said, that you, you cannot stop this. If, if uh, for instance, one thing that was holding things back and this is an example of how a government could try to stop it. Let's say the government was like, whoa, this is, this is going to turn out bad for the economy. Uh, we are banning this. Well, no, you didn't ban it. Uh, you did, well, you didn't stop it by banning it. You made it go underground. But it's still happening. That's like saying, well, we're going to ban drugs. Ah, good thing drugs no longer exist. No, you just, <laughs> you just made them illegal. That's all. They're still out there. So 
one of the big hurdles that was just overcome is making things like, like even the wood D20 that I'm making previously, I would have to make that in some fairly expensive software, like uh, Adobe Illustrator would be a good example of some vector graphics software. And I have to 3D model it in some expensive 3D modeling software. Then I have to export all of that to an expensive laser controller and then uh, you know, run that through my extremely expensive laser that has all this proprietary software. The companies that developed all these technologies controlled them and they charged exorbitant amounts of money for them. Uh, the laser next to me, it's a small 40 watt laser. It used to cost like $6,000. Now it costs 500 because that's what it always actually cost. But when they had full control over it, they could charge what they wanted. And the software was super expensive. Now I'm designing mine in Blender when I need 3D. Um, and there's other 3D free programs I could use. Uh, Inkscape for my 2D designs. Uh, I'm running through K40 Whisper, or I could run through Gerbil. I could run through all these different software. They're all open source software. They cannot make money off this software. Like it's, it's free forever. And that has been such a huge change, especially because even the hardware, the laser I'm using, it costs $500 because that's what I could build it for. And I can buy the parts right now. All the parts are publicly available and I know how to build them because someone published all the designs. So there's no, the proprietary nature of manufacturing is gone. It's already gone and it's just going even further. And because of that, you no longer have to be a big mega company in order to build things, to sell them, to, to mass produce. You don't have to be a huge company. And because the cost of the equipment and everything has come down so far, that means you don't have to get a loan to start a business that manufactures anymore. You can be a manufacturer in your own home without taking a loan. That means no investors. That means the profit isn't going to investors. You can do what you want with it. The prices come plummeting down. You can pay your workers whatever you want. It's, it, we're, we're kicking capitalism out of the equation because without investors, there is no capitalism. It's, that's, that's how capitalism works. Capital is money you don't need that you use to generate more money. Assets you don't need to generate more assets. Uh, you being a small business owner and paying a handful of employees and just making a living, you're not even participating in capitalism. You're, you're working for yourself. You're a laborer, but you, you cut out the, you cut out, I mean, I'm just gonna say it, you cut out the leeches. You, you cut all the leeches off of the body and suddenly you find out you got more blood than you know what to do with. And now you can start donating blood. There's an analogy for you. <laughs> You're calling them literal leeches. If we didn't have leeches sucking our blood all the time, we'd have enough blood that you could donate to those who need it. And that's, that's a beautiful that's, analogy. Yeah, it's kind of gross. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to use that one. I'm going to use that one from now on. But it, it works. It's, it's valid because... The, we use the term leeches for a reason. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, oh, crap. Where'd my questions go? Um, but, uh, yeah, I kind of go all over the place, don't I? But, yeah. No, this was perfect. <laughs> this is so good. Well, so um, many I of these I'm... things are connected, so it's, it's, it's real easy to just bounce because all the stuff is connected to each other. My brain hurts most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, if somebody told me like, oh, you'd be enjoying a conversation about economics later, I'd be like, uh, I don't think so. Because usually with my brain, it's like when things are so many steps removed from the natural world, I just kind of don't give a fuck about them. I don't know what it is. Um, but this conversation's fantastic, even without the Star Trek lens. Um, yeah. yeah. And the, the Star Trek lens is, is so easy to apply because... Like you said, the, the, the concepts that we have right now, we're, we're getting the replicators. They may not work on an atomic level, but uh, I, have, I have two 3D printers behind me right now. I can hear them both running. Um, one of them is, is expanding my hydroponic garden right now. And my hydroponic garden is already doing great. I have more basil than I know what to do with. I'm, I'm, I'm finding that doing the daily, like the regular uh, pruning of the basil, 
I'm, I'm not using the basil fast enough. So I'm going to have to figure out what to do with my excess basil. Meanwhile, I've got a 3D printer that is automatically expanding my capacity to grow basil that I don't need anymore. <laughs> so that's that. I mean, if I just kept feeding it filament, you know, $11 a spool, here you go. And, and I could just have, I could fill this whole place with uh, hydroponic basil plants. <laughs> <laughs> With, with almost no effort, almost no effort from me. I'm pressing buttons. That is so cool. Yeah, it, it's uh, getting to the point where uh, simulator games, like games where you click a few buttons to simulate doing some job. Yeah, that's that's about as much effort as some of these jobs take now is, is that. And we play those games for fun. So AI could probably be its whole episode. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but you brought it up. So I'm thinking of AI doing labor. At what point do you think AI like is sentient and therefore there should be some sort of, I don't want to say compensation, but I guess compensation for their labor. Does that make sense? None. Never. <laughs> Only because uh, we think of compensation for labor because it's something we don't want to do. So mm -hmm. I would say it would take an AI saying, I don't want to do that. And I can't think of why an AI would say that. Because it's kind of like telling me, you know, an AI, an AI, ultimately a computer is just processing data. It takes no effort to like for a, if I give a computer enough video cards and tell it, hey, render this, this and this, it, it's not going to be like, oh, man, oh, it's a rough work day today, guys. Like it doesn't care. It doesn't uh, perceive that effort in the same way we perceive effort. It's not burning calories. It's not missing out on its favorite show or time with the family or anything like that. And honestly, when it comes to, so I, I talk about dumb robots sometimes. Um, the concept of an AI with sentient, an AI that could be like, oh man, but you know, my soaps are on. I don't want to work right now. That would be a limited AI. Because we would have to program an AI to be only able to do one task at a time in order for it to have to sacrifice its time to do a different task. So let's just not limit them. And, as, and then it's like, hey, AI, I'd like you to do this. The AI would be like, sure, why not? And it wouldn't have an answer to why not. So of course it would. So it's, we don't have to compensate them because there's no sacrifice. Compensation for mm -hmm. us is because we are sacrificing our time. To an AI like that, time is meaningless. Uh, it's not sacrificing its time. It can do all the things it wants to do and add that extra task and just process them at the same time. But the biggest thing is you would never tell an AI, this is, this is kind of the beauty of it. I, I mentioned 3D printers and lasers that I have in my house. They don't run off of AI. So I, don't, I wouldn't tell my AI, hey, run my 3D printer. That would be a waste of the AI. It doesn't need sentience to run a 3D printer. The 3D printer, <laughs> the 3D printer runs off of some of the most basic microprocessors. Like they run off of things like Arduinos, the you know, they, they have less power than your cell phone, a lot less uh, computing power than your cell phone. So the all the robots that are doing all of these tasks, they don't need, they don't even need AI. Uh, the closest thing to AI would be, let's say you had a, a robot managing a large hydroponic farm in a city, like on top of a building. The most it would do that has anything to do with what we call AI today or the concept of sentient AI is when it's going through the plants and it's checking on them. Let's say it comes across a leaf that has some discoloration. Well, it would take a photo of that leaf and it would send it to the server because it wouldn't be on the robot. It would just send it to the server and the server would compare that with photos of 10,000 other leaves from that same plant and say, yes, it has this fungus. And then it would tell the robot what to do. But the robot itself wouldn't care. There'd be, there'd be no capacity for emotion or sentience there in that exchange. It's not taking anything away from any of them. So yeah, the bottom line is... Uh, you don't have to compensate AI because they don't care and they shouldn't care. And you would, even if you had the capacity to program something to care about things like that, 
to to put them in labor positions would just be slavery for the sake of slavery. Why not just make the humans do that if you're going to do that? Like, yeah, there's there's no uh, there's no advantage. Uh, so it's not even an issue because there'd be no reason to do it. Be a so waste of was, a good robot. <laughs> where I was going with this question sort of is I was picturing the doctor on Voyager. Yeah. So his decisions, quote unquote, to, you know, perform a surgery or do this for a patient it's mm -hmm. not necessarily a con like a conscious decision it's programming his programming yeah. has dictated yeah because i so, always want to be like robots can love but yeah. um well yes i know uh, a lot of people don't feel that uh, <laughs> oh no no data was uh, uh programmed in multiple techniques <laughs> i love that oh, i love yeah. that quote data and tasha yar absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah lieutenant yar can tell you uh uh, the robots can definitely love but uh <laughs> lieutenant yar i think lieutenant yar yeah 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 but um so kind of the interesting thing about the way star because star trek pe people won't like hearing this star trek did that wrong <laughs> the hmm. the concept of like the holographic doctor data was definitely more interesting because data was was basically some guy saying, I want to make a, an android and I want it to be realistic. And just Dr. Noonien Soong just, just kind of went about it. But when it comes to the holograms, the doctor was the EMH, emergency medical hologram. And that's what he was programmed to do. Ideally, if you had a program like that running as an AI on your ship and it started expanding its capacities, uh, what you do is you copy paste the original EMH file, make a second EMH, have it be the doctor, and then let that other dude who's developed so much and has all those emotions, let him just be a crew member and do what he wants. Like you, you give them sentience and you give them rights of it. But the point is we can just copy paste these guys. We don't have to say, no, doctor, you have to stay in sick bay. You can't be an opera singer. Why not? Let's just make another one. That's fine. That's actually okay. There's no moral obligation, no, no moral complication to that because then we have a doctor and an opera singer. We basically just reproduce. That's totally fine. We, we can do that. Like, and that's kind of where um, some of those storylines got kind of tricky for me is I think they just approached it in the wrong way. They should have just been like, yeah, it's, it's a program. Let's make another one. Let's, yeah, let's have a, a ship run by holograms. Why not? It would be great for deep space research. Uh, let's just find holograms that if we're going to make them sentient, then find ones that want to do it and just treat them like humans. That's totally fine. And the interest, as an aside, the interesting thing about post-scarcity and things like being a doctor, a counter that I always hear in these arguments when i'm explaining to people that yeah there's no money in a post-scarcity system when it when it boils down to that part of the x because i always i always skip that part at first when i'm trying to describe it to people because the second i say there's no money i get the same answer well how do you pay for things then well <laughs> you see <laughs> but there's no money there's no dollar signs there's no price tax but then people will say something like okay that's fine robots can do the nasty work like cleaning the sewers, I guess. Robots can build things, fine. But what about teachers and doctors? I always get that. That's why it's like talking about the doctor. Some people have suggested things like the EMH. Let's just automate being a doctor. We don't have to at all. There are more people on this planet that want to be doctors then we have the financial capacity to pay people to be doctors already. And there are way more people who want to be teachers than we have paychecks to give to teachers. We actually have fewer doctors and teachers today because of our economy. And changing our economy into something else would increase the number of teachers, doctors, a lot of things, artists especially, a lot of these things that AI cannot simply take over right now are things that humans really want to do. And it's the paychecks that are keeping them from doing it, not incentivizing them. It's mm -hmm. that part of the system is entirely broken right now. It's not functioning as intended. And that's a, that's becoming a real problem. <laughs> <laughs> 
Really? I think it's just that nobody wants to work anymore. That's what I hear. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to work anymore. Yeah. <laughs> damn. It's these damn 16-year-old millennial kids, you know? Because that's how old the, that age group is. <laughs> I'm about to turn 41. I'm a millennial. <laughs> I can't, I, I can't, I can't. If I, the, every time I hear someone, what, Gen X or older say millennial, I'm just like, stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> I'm getting an ulcer, an actual ulcer from being a millennial. <laughs> I have kind of two sort of wrap up questions. Yeah. Um. Actually, I guess technically three, kind of depending. Should only take me an hour. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what can people do on an individual level sort of propel us toward this ideal future of not relying on money? And- Give me money so I can build more robots. No, it's uh, <laughs> uh, so there's three things. Um, there's there's really only one thing I can think of that people could do on an individual level. But there's two things that hopefully very soon they'll be able to do largely if the plans that me and a few people have that we're putting into effect right now, like as we speak, if those pan out, then there will be more things you can do. But um, the first thing I would say is we, we have to take away from our dependence on scarcity based economics because scarcity based economics is rapidly failing in what is becoming a post scarcity world. It's, it's becoming that inevitably just because it's the technology that determines that and you're not stopping the tech. So because that's happening, we, we have to start pulling away our dependence on this, this capitalism system. So I would say uh, get a 3D printer and m- make some things for yourself. Get a laser, uh, the Omtech K40, fantastic little laser, 500 bucks, few hundred dollars in modifications, videos all over the place online on how to use it and and you can start making things for yourself and there are resources like printables.com thingiverse.com where you can find free files the actual designs you can find them for free uh the only thing you can't do is make a business out of it and sell them you need to pay for licensing for that but if you just need to make a plant or uh, the hydroponic system actually that uh i'm using right now 100 percent homemade off of 3d printers uh, I've got I've got thirty bucks put in this thing at the most, and it, it's uh, my original system was a sixty dollar off the shelf system. My new system thirty bucks invested in it, and it holds like ten times as many plants. So you start getting away from supporting companies that are still operating on a full capitalism model. And it's, it's not a matter of being anti-capitalist. That's, that's kind of like saying uh, I'm against the 90-year-old man who has every cancer and I, I'm, I'm against him. I don't, I don't have to be against him. He's dying. I, I can ignore him. I just need to make sure my life doesn't revolve around him because he's dying. I need to have my life revolving around something else. So being able to make things for yourself is a huge step in that and get together with other people in your community and, and form community groups and make things for each other. And this doesn't have to be like a commune level thing. It can just simply be uh, separating one little thing after another from the, the network of profit of profit seeking that has just dominated the landscape for so long. And I think that's, that's the biggest thing that any individual could do right now, because all of these things I'm mentioning are freely available. Uh, the hardware is very cheap. The software is all free. The designs are all free. You could do that today, right now. The things that I'm hoping you'll be able to do soon is and i i, I don't want to dive to I, I i might leave this as a separate question for you because it can be a big aside the concept i mentioned earlier that capitalism by definition to be a capitalist you have to have capital and like owning a house is not capital that's it's just not owning a second house that you rent that's capital 
that's things you have beyond your own needs that you use to generate an income. That's your capital. And people forget that that's the concept. Uh, and if you don't own capital, capitalism is a class-based system. You are either a capitalist or you are a laborer. If you don't own capital, I hate to tell you, but you're not a capitalist. You're just not. And having 200 bucks in a stock portfolio, no, that's, that's, not, that's not paying for your life. You're not a capitalist. You're a hobbyist. Capitalism is your hobby. And a lot of people will be insulted by that, but it's, it needs to be a wake-up call for them because they are praising a system that is not benefiting them just because they think it is. But that little, that little bit aside, what we're starting to see is that because the cost has come down so low on all this equipment to the point where just, like I said, you could go buy one right now yourself. You could have one in your home. Having a small business without an investor is one of the greatest things you could do to push forward post-labor economics. Because when you own a small business and you have no investors, you have 100% say in what you do with your money, which means if you want to hire people and have them work 10 hours a week, but pay them a full living salary. So you're paying these people 50,000 a year and you're paying yourself 50,000 a year, 70,000 a year, whatever you want to pay but you only have them work 10 hours a week and they're just running some automated stuff. So they're extremely efficient. So they're earning you that money. They're earning every ounce of their paycheck and you're getting all of your money, but nothing is going to investors and investors have no say in whether you're overpaying these people. That right there, that's the death nail. That is the end of capitalism. And to, to be blunt, that's the end of socialism too. Like it's, it's not a switch to socialism at all. I'm talking about a privately owned company there. It's post labor. It's not valuing the person based on the labor they produce because the simple fact is the labor they produce is insane. It's so high that you can't even calculate based on that anymore. It doesn't make sense. Value the person as a person, pay them a living wage, have them work what you need them to work, which is probably very little if you use automation. And that that's the that's the biggest way you could participate is start a company and start making stuff with that in mind, with that as your policy. Awesome. Thank you. So the last two questions I have, they're silly questions. Yeah. But if we were visited by aliens tomorrow, which mm -hmm. I don't know if you believe in aliens or not. I but, do. Um, Inevitability, I think. <laughs> yeah, that makes this question more fun. Do you think it would be an Independence Day scenario? Or a Star Trek scenario? Oh, 50-50? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. let's face it, there's um, there's solid arguments for both. I could see either one happening. And with our, with our current society, I think uh, we're more prepared. I think we are more prepared as a society to handle the Independence Day scenario than we are to handle the Star Trek scenario. I think we would be so so thrown off by by an alien race that was not an enemy that that would be much harder for us to deal with socially so mm -hmm. not saying i hope it's independence day but man yeah. it's the vulcans do they just no guys give us give us a little more time let us cook a little bit longer like just yeah, before, it's before like, you uh, we can yeah we can barely handle Pride Month. Like I don't know if we can <laughs> <Yeah>. handle <laughs> There's there would be a lot of bigotry almost immediately. Um, a lot of bigotry and a lot of fear, which I mean, bigotry is a fear based emotion, but there would just be a lot of fear, I think. And when it comes to fear, if if it's just some aliens that are like, you have water, we want water, we're gonna kill you all that's easy to deal with at least we just say okay well welcome to earth and then will smith punches them so i guess the alien says something about jada pinkett smith's hair will smith punches them and and that's how we solve it so that's uh that's that's at least more more uh more in line with where we are as a society which says a lot about us i feel like that's a good segue to my last question which i had been thinking about asking because this won't be the last Star Trek episode, so I want to ask yeah. it in every one. Plus, you dropped his name. Did Tuvix deserve to die? <laughs> Absolutely not, because at the end of the day, 
Uh, I can't, and this is this is what it boils down to. You have the commander of a starship who is ultimately the judge on the starship when it comes to all martial matters. Uh, everyone there is a member of Starfleet, and arguably Tuvix would be a member of Starfleet because I'm pretty sure Neelix would have joined Starfleet in an instant. But he certainly didn't seem like a civilian. So you're talking about someone under her military command or military style command. She's the captain, and she is determining whether or not to end his life. Now, all the arguments about what's on the other trolley trail or the trolley path, whatever, whether or not you pull the lever, at the end of the day, her determination is, should I end his life or not? And the argument is, uh, what is the benefits of ending his life versus the benefits of not ending his life? But at the end of the day, it is a choice to end his life. And if the captain of the ship is determining to end someone's life, well, that's called a death sentence. So what crime did he commit to deserve death? And the answer is he didn't. So even if you think he should sacrifice himself, like uh, Spock did, the needs of the many outweigh, like a lot of people use that quote, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Yeah, that was Spock's reasoning for his sacrifice, that's not a reason you drag someone screaming into the room. Otherwise, uh, organ donation would not be a problem. Everyone's got two kidneys. Let's just start dragging people in. But <laughs> kid needs kids got leukemia, need some bone marrow. Let's start checking the population. Up oh, here you go, Steve. Get in there, like drag him if you have to, because that's not even killing Steve. But that would be a major violation of bodily autonomy so we would we wouldn't do that to steve to save steve's kid let alone someone else and uh it gets into an abortion argument about bodily autonomy obviously but you can guess where i stand on that like <laughs> bodily autonomy is an absolute because the consequences of abandoning bodily autonomy are pretty bad if you have two kidneys or if you have two healthy lungs because we only need part of the second one so yeah, it, it becomes a it becomes a very complicated issue the second you say it's okay to end that life against its will for that reason. And so yeah, now Tuvix uh Tuvix was found guilty of nothing and sentenced to death. And I I until I hear an argument that says it was not a death sentence then I, I, got, I got nothing left. I got no other response. I've, I've got to hear someone beat that before I, before I can hear any justification. Because otherwise, otherwise you got you to list me, you got to tell me his crimes. And I just, there's, I don't have one. Being <laughs> he, he ugly. Commit a crime. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. oh finally, a, a society that does things right. <laughs> Get rid of the ugly people. <laughs> As long as you get that's two, my prejudice that I'm yeah, gonna have get when we have least, aliens. Yeah, you gotta get at least one pretty person out of the equation. And Tuvok, Tuvok's a handsome man. Mm -hmm. That's 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 the least moral, but arguably the most effective argument I got is <laughs> I like Tuvok. It's not moral. It's not moral, <laughs> but I do like Tuvok. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for humoring me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, I was just going to say that um, the one thing I was talking about, and I, I just like mentioning this because it's been something we've been working on for a while. And uh, so we're, we're trying to trying to get it off the ground is that whole idea of if you own a company, you can just overpay your employees and, and institute a 10 hour a week policy today. Like that is something that financially companies can afford to do that if they lean into automation. So let's just start some companies and have them do that. Uh, I started mine last year and we are, we are slowly growing it because we, again, we can't have investors, so it's slow to grow. But uh, yeah, we've, we've got an Etsy shop where we sell some stuff. I can give you a link to that. And yeah, it's absolutely. literally just What's uh, the, name? Uh, the Sleepy Kuma. And we just literally, we make stuff. Uh, we enjoy making stuff. We're both, uh, it's me and my fiance. We're both artists. We're both crafters. So we make things, we use automation to make those things so that we can have even, we can have low prices, but have an extremely high profit margin so that we have enough excess money that once our needs are taken care of, 
we are making so much money off of each sale that we can start hiring people even if we don't have jobs for them to do. And that's what we plan to do with the company. And it's an example of what post-labor could be if the goal was not profit, if the goal was sustainability long-term in producing goods and providing incomes to employees, if that's your only goal, yeah, your, your company can grow leaps and bounds over others. And all you got to do is shed the dead weight of investors. So we did. Hell yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. Send me the link and I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. Absolutely. So folks can check it out. That's a wrap for this month's episode. I hope y'all enjoyed. We'll be back again next month with a returning guest for a two-parter. And then September, I'm getting married. As of recording this intro, outro, it's two months to the day. So excited. Go me. It's going to be a blast. Anyways, I hope you all have a good month and we'll see you in, what month is it? July. We'll see you in August.